Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us all. We thank you for the rain. Thank you uh, that you have blessed us so abundantly, we almost feel entitled to blessing. Thank you that you have, you have given us everything that we have, everything that we are. We thank you for who you are and what you've promised and all that you've accomplished and for sending Jesus to be our Savior and giving us a hope through him, a living hope that does not fade away and that we have a home in heaven reserved for us and we have brothers and sisters to encourage and, and be encouraged by and be strengthened in faith. And Lord, we pray that you would help us today that our hearts would be opened that we would attend to the things that you're saying to each one, that the Spirit would be moving in our midst, that we'd be filled with your presence and have an understanding and great delight in what you say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Adequate preparation is very important to a successful result. It doesn't matter if you're making dinner or you're painting or pouring concrete or sitting an exam, all those things, there's a lot more preparation than the actual doing of the thing. Like an exam, you could study for a year for an exam, or, or cram for weeks, or, or nights, but the exam's over in an hour. But you, there was all this preparation that went into a good result, and, and a lack of preparation, it will negatively impact the result. And in our society where we can communicate instantly and we can watch news or show on demand or we can choose for an extra couple bucks to, to send a package express to arrive the same day or the next day, we can overlook the value of preparation and waiting. And, and we can think if we're made to wait that it's a waste, that there's something wrong that we have to wait. Um, but God's created the earth with days and nights and seasons and months and years. And I was thinking of human babies. They're in the womb for nine months. And that's, God's given that time for the baby to develop into a child. But also, it gives time for parents to prepare to be a parent. Right? There's that preparation. We're like, now you've got this baby growing inside of you. But there's going to come a time where that baby is going to be in your arms. And you need to prepare for that. So God's so good to give us those opportunities. Um, and God's patient to prepare when we think we've prepared enough. We're prepared. We're ready. And, and we're tired of waiting. But see, God has plans that are much better um, than we can imagine. And waiting by itself isn't preparing. You can be waiting, but not prepared. If we look through the scripture, we see quite Easily, there were so many times where God prepared people over time, like Moses. He, for 40 years, he tended his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. He was a humbled man who once grew up as the prince in Egypt, but God prepared him for a purpose to lead his people out of Egypt and into the land of promise. And God allowed times of separation from his presence with his people and allowed them to be oppressed by their enemies so that they would prepare their hearts to seek him. They needed that time so that they could be prompted to look to the Lord. And Isaiah, he spoke of a prophet that God would send to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. And that was John the Baptist. And we read in Luke 180, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And we'll be in Luke chapter 3, if you'll turn there. John was prepared by God 
by being filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, and that he would be, he was in the deserts and until it was time to prepare the way. And I think, what if John was my son, 30 years old, living in the wilderness, unmarried, wearing camel hair and a leather belt, eating wild locusts and honey for survival? Like, what a deadbeat. Like, you have to try to explain, like, what's going on in his life. Well, you know, he's doing, he's kind of a unique person. And people go, well, what's going on with John anyway? I haven't seen him for a while. And you, you feel compelled to try to back him, maybe. I just think about it as my position as a parent. But, and what if that was you? What if you were the one filled with the Holy Spirit and you were in this solitary desert place until 30-ish years of age and God said, now it's time to go prepare people for the Messiah. I've prepared you. I'm preparing them, and I'm going to use you to prepare them for Jesus. See, God's ways are not our ways, are they? Luke 3, verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod, being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Luke's given us all these uh, historical details that confirm the time of the ministry of John the Baptist and the life of Jesus. So just a few dates to, to help say, well, that we know that it was during this period. Tiberius Caesar, he ruled as a Roman emperor from 14 to 37 AD. He was known as an excellent general and a tyrannical recluse in his later years. Uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman-appointed governor or prefect in Judea from 26 to 36 AD. And in 1961, there was a very significant archaeological discovery in Caesarea where there were steps that had been repurposed from stones that actually had the name Pontius Pilate on it. Before that, there was only coins that pointed to the existence of Pontius Pilate in the archaeological record. So if you've gone to Caesarea, you've seen the Pilate stone. It's a, it's a copy of the stone that's now in a museum. But that's a significant find because it's like, hey, the Bible is confirmed to be true again. Herod Antipas, that was Tetrarch in Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., the ruler that Jesus referred to as that fox. Philip, his brother Lysanias, they were also tetrarchs, and a tetrarch is to be over a quarter of a region. So that's what tetrarch means. It's a Greek word. I didn't know that. Uh, Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, uh, they are both referred to as high priests here, and that's interesting because under the law, you would only have one high priest, one serving at that time. Annas was appointed to be high priest from 6 to 15 AD by Quirinius of Syria, and he had five sons that served as high priests after him. However, Caiaphas, but it's like Annas, he was given respect as a high priest, though he was a retired high priest. He still had a lot of pull in the society. And Caiaphas, his son-in-law, he married his daughter, he was placed, he was a Sadducee that was placed as high priest uh, and the Sadducees were very involved in politics and Roman affairs. 
So the Jews, they resented Roman rule. Caiaphas was appointed by the Romans, but because of his family connection with Annas, it was okay. It kind of smoothed things and helped him be established. So all these rulers are in place. When the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, the stage is set for this grand drama to unfold. And I started thinking about the preparation that goes into a stage production. I know you've probably watched a stage production, but if you've been involved with it, uh, you realize there's a lot that goes on before the opening night, the big show. And you've, you've got the script that's been written, and the actors cast, and lines rehearsed, and they've practiced. Um, the sets have been constructed and painted, the costumes, the designs, the, there, there's all the tickets that have gone out, and, and the venue prepared, and staging and music and mics and lights and sound and it's all been arranged before people come in to be entertained for an hour or two so much that goes into it and god had been speaking through the law and the prophets and the psalms for centuries for over thousands of years that jesus the messiah would come that he would send a savior the anointed one of god who would save his people from their sins and God used one man, John the Baptist, to prepare the way. Isn't it amazing that God chooses to include us in his big plans? He has this big plan to save humanity, and he calls John the Baptist. He, he prepares him in the wilderness for 30 years, uh, until he's around, around 30 years of age, to accomplish this by his grace. And it wasn't just for entertainment. It was to prepare lost people to be found, the dead to rise, for life to come into a dying world. Luke 3, verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was revealed to Israel in the spirit and power of Elijah, that famed prophet of old, and he dwelt around the same area. Remember when Elijah was taken up uh, in that whirlwind of the chariot of fire? They crossed the Jordan. So he's right in that region, and he's wearing clothes that would have hearkened back to a prophet of old time, wearing this camel hair and this um, leather belt. And he's going around, he starts preaching this baptism of repentance for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism was not a foreign concept to the Jews under law. If there was something to be ceremonially cleansed, if it ever says that you needed to wash in water, it was talking about this bathing or complete immersion in a mikvah. There were rules about the kind of pool, how, what capacity it needed to be, and the way the water was sourced. But before you went to the temple, if you were unclean because of uh, menstruation or because you touched a dead body or something, if you were going to appear before the Lord, you had to immerse every hair of your head. Everything needed to be immersed in the mikvah. And it was this idea that you were being reborn. There was this cleanliness. There was this new life now that you've entered into because uh, you've been cleansed. You've been washed. 
And if you wanted to convert to Judaism, there were three things that you needed to do in this time. You would, as a man, you'd need to be circumcised. You would need to be immersed. You need to be baptized in the mikvah to symbolize being born again like an infant from the womb and then sacrifice. The law had already prepared the people of God to know about him, to know his holiness, man's sin, his need for atonement for that sin. But the focus, if you think about it, was so much more on the ritual and of the amount of animals and the kind of animals. There was really nothing that talked about how your heart should be, right? Sorrow for your sin, that you would have a change of heart about the thing you had done. That's not really talked about at all, right? The law commanded the sacrifice of bulls and goats and sheep. It didn't emphasize the need for personal repentance at all. It was just about there was a payment to be made. There was a sacrifice to be offered. That was really it. John preached this baptism of repentance for remissions of sins, not to say that immersing in water was going to wash your soul from sin, but that repentance is a key component to receiving pardon from God. That's the message that was coming. The full meaning behind the baptism that we undergo as a believer in identification with Christ and this baptism of repentance for remission of sins, it's different because he was preparing the way for Jesus. And we are baptized in identification with him. There's many similarities to the two. But this uh, passage here is quoted from Isaiah 40, verse 3 and 5, that this preaching of the baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, prepared the way for Jesus. And it had been 400 years since the uh, words of a prophet had been written down. And now John is crying out. John is attracting the attention and capturing the imagination of the people of Israel. This mountains brought low and valleys filled in, those rough places made smooth. I think the M1 is a pretty good example of that. Right? Have you ever just driven that road and you're like, wow, this used to be like a rocky crag. And they have dynamited, they have chopped this mountain down. And then instead of filling the valleys, they've built bridges over waterways and places that you can go. You don't even need a 4 by 4 You can just go 110 Ks or faster very easily on that road. It's smooth. It's nice. It wasn't landscape that John was working with, though. He was dealing with the crooked and flint-hearted people who needed forgiveness and salvation. That's what he was preparing. There were mountains that needed moving. There were valleys that needed filling. There were bridges that needed to be built to allow the Savior's words to have an impact in their hearts. To be able to see and receive the salvation of God. And it was a process that required time and effort. There's a time in the New Testament when Jesus is looking at a fig tree for fruit and he didn't find any. And so he cursed the tree. And the disciples were shocked when the next day they're like, hey, master, that tree that you cursed, it's shriveled up by the roots. And this was Jesus' response. If you turn there to Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 22. Mark 11 Verse 22. 
So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Jesus showed in causing that tree to wither that of the power of faith, that when he, per, when he cursed that tree, it dried up. So his words affected real change. Jesus did not do this to set an example that we would be cursing trees or causing mountains to fly into the ocean. That's not really the things in context that we're talking about here because he's showing how, how unbelief leads to fruitlessness, to unforgiveness, because see how that's tied in right away? He's talking about mountains. He's talking about the tree. You know, the tree is nothing. This mountain, it could be moved into the sea. But if you don't... If you pray believing, you will receive. Your prayers and your faith affect fruitfulness and change. You know, there's hurts that we have suffered that's like a mountain that is impossible for us to move out of our hearts. There is unbelief in our minds. It's like it makes us fruitless because we have not trusted God at all. We haven't even thought to pray. And if we did, it was half-hearted. We didn't really believe it was going to do anything. There's unforgiveness and resentment these are the issues that God's wanting to deal with in our hearts and in our minds. And we think it's impossible. I can't change. I can't forgive. I'll never forgive. It is impossible for you, but not for God. Jesus just spoke to the tree. It shriveled up. And he says, if you pray believing, you'll have what you ask for. You don't believe it. They didn't believe it. And it was Jesus talking. But this is the truth that we are to receive. Let the Lord prepare you to receive this truth. That if we'll repent of our unbelief and our unforgiveness, God will heal and restore us. He'll do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I said, move that mountain by mind power. You'd go, impossible. God's able to transform. He's able to change. And he's much more caring about us repenting and confessing our unforgiveness than throwing mountains into the sea. We'd be really happy to say, I threw that mountain because of my faith, right? That would be a monumental thing that we could just impress people. Is that what we want, just to impress people or to please God because we are confessing our unbelief, our fruitlessness, and saying, Lord, I'm like that tree. I'm like a dried up tree and I don't believe your Holy Spirit can do anything about it. Let's admit that. So John prepared the way by clearing away these mountains of sin, these valleys of unbelief with stern preaching and exhortation. And people kept coming and they kept confessing and they sought to be baptized by him. Luke 3 verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, that's a pretty rugged thing to say, right? People are coming out to be baptized, you're like, brood of vipers. The Holy Spirit was just speaking powerfully through him. It's like the machinery and the dynamite that cut through those mountains to make the Pacific Highway. That's like what God was doing in the hearts and minds of people. He was making a way, an entrance point, so that they could receive the truth from John and what was to come through Jesus Christ. And he doesn't mince words, does he? Where he He calls them, and these are people who want to be baptized. These aren't just looky-loos. These are people who want to be engaged with the ministry he's doing, and he's calling them brood of vipers. Um, Matthew, it says that those comments were directed specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but we see here that Luke makes them applicable to everyone. They were for everyone to hear, not just one group of people. He didn't call them just vipers, but the offspring of vipers, like I know where you come from. And Jesus talked about, you know, you are of your father, the devil, because you're doing his works. If you were of Abraham, you would have believed me. The Jews knew the Genesis account of the fall and the the serpent that was cursed. They knew that very well. And so calling them a brood of vipers, like identifying with that curse, it would have impacted them. And he questioned their motives. He says, why are you coming to me? Who among your ding of thieves would warn you about coming judgment? Who's going to warn you about what's to come? Because if you're truly concerned about being godly, then your lives should reflect that. He did not want to give these proud, unrepentant hypocrites false hope because being baptized in water was not going to wash them of their sins or give them pardon before a holy God. He knew, and he says, don't even say to yourselves, Um, oh, we have a father. He's like, don't even go there. Don't try to justify yourself by your ethnicity or your heritage or the covenant that you have a mark in your flesh through circumcision. Don't even go there. The fact that you're a descendant and it can trace to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's not an ace up your sleeve or a get-out-of-jail-free card for all you Monopoly players out there. So you can have favor with God So you could avoid honest self-examination and conviction for sin. He's like, you can't wriggle off this hook. Maybe they're like an employee whose dad owns the place and feels entitled to special treatment. Because it's like, hey, this is our covenant. This is our God. You can't talk to us like this, John. It's like one who believes that being christened or baptized as a child it guarantees salvation or, or that by raising your hand or going forward at a revival to pray with a minister means that you're saved. He's saying don't, don't fool yourself, don't kid yourself because no, not one of us by our deeds or merits can inherit eternal life or are we justified before God. So he's like, those things don't justify you so stop justifying yourselves. Receive the truth, repent, And do what's right. 
The one who determines if a tree bears good fruit is the one who carries the axe. It's not the tree that gets to decide if the fruit is good or not. And if there can be good fruit, the analogy continues that there can be no fruit or there can be bad fruit. So the one holding the axe is the one you need to pay attention to. And he says every tree that bears bad fruit, it's going to be cut down. But the people, they're, it's like they are locked in. They are hearing this, verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Genuine repentance is not just admitting to past sin, but it's seeking to be restored to God and doing what's right in the future. Sin rightly deserves judgment, so true repentance, it calls for an amendment of life, change going forward. This principle of restitution, it's outlined in the law that if you, were to, if you were guilty of stealing something, you would need to restore it plus interest. So the people are asking, well, what do we do? How do we make this right? We've done the wrong thing. We've, we've done wickedly. How can we put it right? They had this concept from law. And John directs people to their dealings with fellow men as evidence that they are right with God. Because they are right with God, they're seeking to have a relationship with people. And if I can boil it down simply, these three groups that are coming to him, if I could sum them up, these uh, regular folks and tax collectors and soldiers who were likely Roman, the essence of what John said was, love one another, do not abuse authority God's given you, and be content with what you have. These are all matters of the heart, aren't they? to love others, to have compassion on someone who's needy, to have authority but not to abuse it, to be considerate of others and of God who has given you that authority, and then contentment because we're so naturally filled with greed and, and selfishness. It's important to point out that John, he gives these directives in response to people who wanted to amend their own lives. It wasn't ammunition for them to use to tell others what they should do. See, you should be doing more of this, because John said to. No, no, if you're repentant, if you desire to amend your life, this is what you need to do. So it's a personal thing, right? This is something we need to take to our hearts. And he's saying, love one another with compassion, generosity, meeting practical needs. If you see someone hungry, they don't have food, give them food. If you have two coats and you don't need one, and you see someone who needs it, give it to them. He tells the tax collectors who were notorious and hated because it was common practice to overcharge. That was one of the perks of the job is you had the Romans backing you, and you basically go to people and say, pay your taxes. And you could tell them whatever you wanted. And then you could take any extra and siphon that away. So, and people knew what was going on. They're like, oh, the rates over here are terrible because we got this tax collector who's so greedy. So he's saying, be honest in your business dealings. 
soldiers. They could use their position of power to intimidate, to threaten. They could be bribed for gain. And soldiers at this time weren't making a great wage. I read that centurions made 18 times the amount of a regular foot soldier in this time. And you had a long, uh, it's like 20 years or so. If you were going to be a soldier, 20 years in, and the way that you could really pad the stats and get more money is when you went to war. And if you plundered, that was where the money was because they're like, all right, Roman soldiers will give you a raise, but now you have to buy all your own food and your clothes. So they're having to buy their own food and clothes. They know the centurions are making 18 times what they're making. And they're like, there's no war right now. Peace time. Man, here's a way to get some money to pay the bills because I still got to eat and I got to wear clothes. It's hardly like uh, the benefits of being a soldier and surviving all that time came at the end. And a lot of guys never got to the end. So they were dissatisfied. If you know that someone else is doing your job or you're doing more than them and they're making 18 times what you're making, what does that lead to? Hmm, some dissatisfaction. All kinds of abuse, all kinds of justification to make your way. You know what they're doing, so you feel very justified to do the same. I wonder if we heard John preach. If we'd be courageous enough to publicly repent and be baptized, and that we would ask him, what do I do? What should I do then? Since I've done the wrong thing, what should I do? Or we'd be pretty self-assured, like, well, I know what to do, I just haven't been doing it. Or would we actually be valiant enough to ask him for him to answer, and then that's the thing that you focus on? Because there's one group that we don't read about here asking the question. The proud and self-righteous Pharisees. They were there, but they didn't ask, what shall we do then? Because they knew what to do. Abraham was their father, and no self-styled prophet was going to tell them anything different. And Jesus later exposed their hypocrisy in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The Pharisees were very much into keeping up appearances with their long tassels and praying at a particular hour and tithing on all the things that they had, even these little, you know, Yeah, small spices and herbs, and that was like fasting. These are the things where they measure their righteousness by. But he's like, I'm I'm like looking at the tree for fruit, guys, and I'm not seeing what I'm looking for. I'm looking for justice, mercy, and faith. It's not in you. Yeah, your robes are clean, but it's like you're like a, a, a grave that's painted white, and it looks clean, but it's full of uncleanness on the inside. It's like a cup that's been washed on the outside, but in the inside, it's full of filth. He's the one with the axe. He's the one who determines if it's good fruit or not. He's saying, I'm looking for it, but I'm not seeing it. They cared more about receiving honor from men than honoring God themselves, and They were the ones that would be cut down in judgment. And a takeaway for me and for us, if we have truly repentant hearts, we'll humbly ask God, what should I do then with intent to obey? Have you ever done that? You know you've been doing the wrong thing, and you actually say, God, 
what should I do instead? What should I do? Not just what should I stop doing. We can know what to not do because we feel guilty. We feel conviction. But what should you be doing? The Lord, man, he, he's used this passage to confront my own selfishness and greed and my unthankfulness, just the wretch that I am. Um, you know, I've been praying for rain like a lot of us for months. Praying for rain. And do you think, think I was satisfied with the amount of rain we had out in Riverston? It maybe filled my pool this much. No, I wasn't. I was like, Lord, I, I confess, I am greedy for rain. I am so greedy. Like, I want it to flood. I want, like, I want the rain to just come, but it's just spitting. Ugh. And it's like, well, hold on. God has answered my prayer. God is awesome in the way, and we could go, well, why didn't you give us this rain like two weeks ago or a month ago? And we could be bitter about that. But shouldn't we be thankful for, first, who God is, all he's done for us, that he is trustworthy and praiseworthy, and even when it doesn't rain or it rains torrentially, we, our, our joy is not caught up in those things because our, he is our joy. We love him because he first loved us and he's given us everything. So I've been really convicted about that. So being content, that picture, be content with your wages. Be content with what God's given you. You have more than you're giving him credit for giving you. He's given you everything. Luke 3, verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation, all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. John was like a herald. His manner and way of speaking it, and the things that he said, it captured the attention of the people and it put them in expectation his meteoric rise to fame made them wonder, is this the Christ? It could be, could it be that this is the Messiah that God promised? It's evident he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He spoke with great power and authority. But he was not like, he was not the Christ. He made no question about that. He was kind of like the entree or nibblies to prepare the appetite for the main course. He got them thinking about the Messiah. He got them wondering, could this be the Messiah? He was mighty in word and deed, but he said, there's one coming who's mightier than me. I'm not even worthy to do the job of a servant to unloose his sandal. And that's what a, what a slave would do. You would have them unstrap your feet and wash them and when they invited you into their home. And so he's, it's really powerful what he's saying. He's like, I'm not even worthy to serve him. I'm not even worthy to, to start to wash his feet. Like that whole process... He's so mighty, so awesome. And this was true. He wasn't worthy. None of us are. This, the reasoning of the people, it shows the propensity to elevate other people 
to a level of authority that only God deserves. People looked to John wondering if he could help them, if he could save them, when only God's worthy of that trust. Imagine if John was of lesser quality and, and decided, oh, I could run with this. He was like the soldiers or the tax collectors, and yes, I am. There would have been a lot of people led astray. But praise the Lord, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He baptized with water, but Christ was coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. John preached this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Jesus would cause the Holy Spirit to regenerate dead souls and cause them to be born again through faith in Christ. It's like the mikvah, when they would, when they would uh, be baptized or be immersed in the water and come out, it symbolized the forgiveness they received. But the, the thing that Jesus would do in baptizing with the Holy Spirit is he would actually, it wouldn't be just like you were born again. It would be in reality, born again, a new person. Still in the same body, but a new person, a new creature by grace through faith. A physical and a spiritual reality. This baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire is not that you will figuratively, as I've heard, be, be on fire. Like, oh, that guy, he's on fire for Christ. Like, I want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. That, that's not the context here. You, I, I guess you can be on fire in, in a sense, but uh, in relating to boldness or courage. But the context is one of baptism of fire as in purification and judgment. The winnowing fan that was used there, it's like if there wasn't a good breeze and you'd go to the threshing floor, well, the fan, you'd use this large fan to blow away the chaff from the wheat. And so you'd have the good wheat that you could eat, and the chaff would be burned up. Good for nothing. Psalm 1, it contrasts the wicked and the righteous, um, like the wheat and the chaff. We have Jesus, the good shepherd. He separates the sheep from the goats. But, you know, the best wheat it still has chaff on it. It has to be threshed. That husk has to be removed. So while it can happen on a, uh, I guess, global or a collective way, that there's this threshing separation between person and person, there's also this separation between the sin in your life and this new creation that God has made. He wants there to be a, a breaking away and a burning up of those impure motives and the unforgiveness and the unbelief. He, wants to, he still needs to deal with that. He wants to. But we must be willing to confess and repent. The Messiah, he says, will thoroughly clean his threshing floor, gathering the wheat, burning the chaff. The purification by fire, it's, it's shown in the Old Testament in Numbers 31, 21 through 23. It says, Then Eli Eleazar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you shall put through the fire, and it shall be clean. It shall be purified with the water of purification, but all that cannot endure fire you shall put through water. When the spoils of war were taken from these, um, I guess, pagan groups or an outside group, nations, anything that could go through the fire without taking damage would be put through the fire. And then it was pure. It was purified. There was a ceremony involved. Uh, but anything that would be damaged, like linen, 
um, leather, something that would burn in the fire, you were to wash that in water. So it needed to be immersed. You would immerse it, and then it would be clean for you to have. Now, naturally, we're a brood of vipers. We're like the chaff that cannot endure the fire. So what God does is he fills us with the Holy Spirit, that living water. And because we're born again, because we're made new creations in Christ, we are enabled and prepared to go through the fire of trials and difficulties that we could not endure before. And God uses those trials to thresh us and to purify us. And we don't like that. I don't like that. And the timing of this baptism with the Holy Spirit we see that occurred when the church was first birthed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. The ultimate judgment of the earth with fire, we speak of that at the day of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 3, where the souls of those made righteous through faith in Christ will be like the wheat gathered into the barn, but the ungodly and all works on the earth will be consumed. The earth itself will dissolve, it says, in fervent heat. So, John the Baptist, sent to prepare the way for Jesus Christ with that baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, bringing those mountains low, raising up those valleys, making those rough places smooth, so that all flesh would see the salvation of God. This is salvation by grace through faith that we proclaim in Jesus Christ. We've been born again. We've been made children of God if we're in him. And having been filled with the Holy Spirit, we are prepared for such a time as this, a time when people are proud, when people are polarized and hurting and cynical and unbelieving. And in light of your pains or struggles, you may say, what must I do? Verse 18, it says, with many other exhortations, he spoke to them. So I just want to turn to one in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Of course, John did not say this. I don't know what other exhortations he said, but this is one that I felt led to consider today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. As far as what can you do when you are hurting? What can you do when you suffer? And you suffer for doing what's right. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory... Excuse me. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. He starts off, he says, beloved. Don't miss that. You are beloved. We forget that he loves us because of the pain that we're going through. You are beloved by God and knowing that he loves you, it changes the way that you view life. The things that he allows you to go through Instead of worrying or anxious thoughts about the future, we're exhorted to rejoice. Saying, beloved, when you go through these fiery trials, don't think that it's some foreign or odd thing just out of nowhere. You're loved. 
and these fiery trials, they're part of the Christian life. Just like when the children of Israel, they were brought into the land that was full of enemies and strongholds and things to overcome, and it was hard. It was hard work. Well, in the Christian life, when you follow Jesus, there's going to be things that are very hard and that are very hurtful that happen. But it's intended by God, since you are in the water, you've been in the water, right? The living water is in you. You are prepared to go through it. It's not going to destroy you. It's going to purify and sanctify you. I'm sure that we talk about purification by fire, like the gold or the silver. If that goes into the fire and the gold is in the crucible, now if the gold could talk and if the gold could feel it would very much cry out and resent the fact and those impurities that are mingled in with the gold, it would very much feel part of it, right? The gold's like, hey, that's part of me. But the metalsmith, the goldsmith knows better. He's saying, that's an impurity that I'm going to draw out from you and I'm going to use this fiery trial to do that. Sometimes we won't know what God's doing. And, and God will allow those fiery trials to purify us of greed and selfishness and unforgiveness and unbelief. And he allows us to suffer when we have forgiven and when we've loved and when we've sacrificed. But it's nothing compared to the sacrifice Jesus has made for us. And what consolation we have when we look to him and we consider what he's gone through for me, sinner, wretch. He's done that for me. He's done that for you. And it says there, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. In the end, we can be glad with exceeding joy that's far more joyful than the trial is painful. Is there found in you, is there found in me today, a repentant heart that seeks the Lord with a humility that asks, what shall I do? Is your life marked with gladness and joy? Because that's what we're exhorted to here, where he says, what should you do? And you go, I can't be joyful in this. I can't be glad when this stuff is going on. Well, we can rejoice in the Lord and we rejoice in the future that he's prepared for us. Because we're beloved. He loves us. Better than repenting and amending our way just to avoid judgment, which is what a lot of the people were doing in John's day, may we seek God as his beloved, trying to live in the way or desirous to live in the way that pleases him. So not just to avoid pain, not just trying to avoid sorrow, but that we would live to please the one who loves us so much that he would send his son. And if you're going through a fiery trial, believer, don't think it's strange. Rejoice that God has already prepared you for this moment and that he will purify and sanctify you and that his will shall be accomplished. We can only ask, what shall we do? And do it because of what Jesus has already done. It's the only way that we can actually ask that question and put it into practice. I just want to finish with Jude 1, 24 and 25 on that theme of rejoicing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Father who alone is wise, 
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have given us Jesus and you have filled us with the Holy Spirit. And I freely confess, Lord, my unbelief and my greed and my selfishness concerning this reign that you, you use to show that's in me. And I pray all of us, Lord, would have a heart to, to rejoice despite the fiery trial, knowing that we can be glad, knowing that you're accomplishing something that's good because you love us. Lord, we are just overwhelmed by your presence, by the comfort that you give us, rejoicing to know you more through the fellowship of suffering with Christ, that as we suffer for doing good, we can rejoice knowing that we are in good company with our Lord and Savior whom we follow. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, move us to seek you, that our eyes would be upon you, that if there's unbelief and unforgiveness and, and bitterness and pride in us, Lord, we confess that and we desire to walk humbly before our God who loves us and has given everything for us. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. Put upon our hearts a great joy to praise you because you're worthy and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.